Hi, I'm Reverend Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who gather each week to be an inquiry and dialogue on living the spiritual life. We're all on the spiritual path, growing in our understanding of ourselves and others, and moving from being complainers to being empowered to simply being. We know that we can't change the world unless we change ourselves. Welcome to the forum. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spiritual Forum. So glad you are here. I want to remind our listeners out there to um, sign up for the weekly newsletter that I put out on the spiritualform.org. Actually, it comes out every time that a podcast episode is posted. And in it, there's often a blog, there's an affirmation, and also news on the new podcast. So please sign up at the spiritualform.org. Today, I'm going to have a really interesting conversation with Rana Dietrich. Rana's career has spanned human resources, higher education, the learning and development space, and entrepreneurship. She's been a senior executive with two different organizations, given multiple keynotes, trained thousands of people, and given a TEDx talk on EVE, the topic of EVE. She holds a BA in business and communications and a master's degree focused on feminist theology. 12 years ago, Rana founded her own business, RanaDietrich.com, where she does everything in her power to honor and embolden women. She creates unique ways for women's stories, both past and present, to be understood as a powerful and sacred source of wisdom, encouragement, and hope. Welcome, Rana. <laughs> that sounds awesome, doesn't it? <laughs> Thank you. It I'm does. glad to be here, Carol. <laughs> I know. I love it when people are impressed by their own introductions. It's like, wow, that's me. I know. That's <laughs> and we should me. all yeah. be impressed by ourselves. We should all be impressed we totally by ourselves. We're all so amazing. We are. Yeah. I agree. So first, um, before we get into our conversation, I want to say um, how much I, my listeners know this, how much I love and appreciate the power of story. And I really look forward to talking with you today about the Bible stories that so fundamentally impact us, even if we don't know it. And second, I also want to say that even though we'll be talking mostly about the stories of women, um, these stories are hugely important to men too. Uh, so I don't want to lose half my audience. They are um, they are in our consciousness, and they're the basis, uh, the very basic premise of our social programming. So I hope everyone stays on to really listen to this really interesting conversation we're going to have. Okay, to start, Ron, I'd love to hear your own story and how you got to be an entrepreneur who does everything in her power to honor and embolden women. Um, can you tell us about how you got to today? Well, that could take us hours, couldn't it? Okay, but well, <laughs> if, I, if I try to go to the condensed version of how did I get to today, uh, I think the, the quick version is I grew up in the church. Uh, grew up Protestant, went to a Presbyterian church. Then I went to a Presbyterian college. Uh, shortly after that, I moved to Korea to be a missionary. Um, not shortly, but within another 10 years. And then I married a pastor. Like I've done all the things that one might expect in the context of uh, a really devout and good, so to speak, Christian life. 
I will say in the midst of that, that there has been much of my own tradition that has been incredibly meaningful to me. Uh, you know, you when you grow up in a world that understands scripture and the divine and what it means to be a human on the face of the planet through a particular lens, there are distinct benefits and gifts present in that, all of which I'm super grateful for. Uh, later, uh, gosh, I'd probably been married about 10 years to the pastor by then, seven, eight, I don't know, somewhere in there. I went to seminary and, uh, got my master of divinity degree. And it was really in the experience of getting my MDiv that not surprisingly for people who've gone to seminary, that I started deconstructing everything that I had once believed and beginning to sort of pick and choose and think more critically about why I had the lens that I did, why my life looked the way that it did, why I was who I was. Um, I also stepped into therapy for the first time, which was a requirement of the MDiv program that you be in therapy the entire three years. Uh, and that was a brand new experience for me uh, and incredibly powerful. I was in spiritual direction as well. Like it was just this immersive experience that peeled back so much of who I was and how I understood myself. And it was coming out of that experience then that I began to see things with a much different lens. I could see patterns and behaviors that were mine that weren't serving me. I could see problems anew in the marriage that I hadn't been willing to name because it was too scary. And it was outside the, how would I say this, outside the story <laughs> that everyone expected that I would be living given the choices that I'd made up to that point. Anyway, long story longer. Uh, after 15 years, uh, after finishing my MDiv, uh, I got divorced from the pastor and it was really, and I was, I'm a mom. I was, I had two little girls that I was raising at the time. Uh, but it was really that experience and all of the things that led up to that, that really began creating this space for me to question a lot and to choose instead of just kind of following the path that I'd always been in. It opened up this new space for me to wonder and to ask questions and to discern what, spoke to me, what didn't, etc. Along the way, of course, in my MDiv program, I'm studying feminist theology. I am learning Hebrew and Greek. I'm seeing very clearly how all these texts are massively subjective and <laughs> told through a male and patriarchal lens. And so I began this process of reimagining some of these stories. Like, if I took away all the stuff I've been told, which of course we never can do completely because it's very hard in do. the water, yeah. but I tried very hard. What if I peel back all of this and I just try to imagine these women for who they were at the time in the circumstances and conditions that they would have been experiencing? Now, who do I see? Now, what wisdom do they have to offer me? And at first, this was very personal for me. Uh, I would just imagine Hagar speaking on my behalf when I'm in the middle of the desert of my own marriage, what does she have to say to me about being in the desert? What does she know about that? What would she want on my behalf? How would she encourage me? And that was really just this 
personal practice that has then led over the years into me working with 52 of these stories now, building a coaching business, um, and creating a context and space in which I can write and speak and talk both in the collective and one-on-one with clients about what it means to be a woman in a world that doesn't always tell our stories in the best ways possible. Uh, and so that's what I keep doing. There's a condensed version. Yeah, I, I understand. I understand that there's a Reader's Digest version to your life, um, but it is a very interesting. It's it's always interesting. Like, where, how did you got get to where you are and looking at these stories? And you're right. It's very, very hard. We we have we have read and told and um, put on dramatic you know, plays about Bible stories, <laughs> and. So we've been told through the lens of way it's been told. I mean, even the Christmas story, I, whenever I do a Christmas Eve service, it's like, you know, a combination of Matthew and Luke together. And it's not like there's any story out there that goes from point A to point B. They're, they're putting all these things together, but we know it as a story that's been told. And we know the story of the Garden of Eden as the way it's been told. We know the story of Hagar as the way it's been told. And it's very hard to pull away from everything you've been told and try to look at it with brand new eyes. And I think you can do that with pretty much everything in the Bible. Look of at <laughs> past all the conditioning and what is this really telling me? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's also very hard to do because we're so, so conditioned. You, you mentioned that in your story, your own story, that you had some sort of an awakening where you began to question everything and look at things with wonder and also um, uh, just activate your discernment. And I think that's really the spiritual path. I, <laughs> in a nutshell, wake mm. up, question everything, look at everything with wonder, and then discern what is true and what is not. Mm-hmm. And what is true for me, right? I think so, so much of what ends up happening in the context of the church or organized religion is, is that what is true is told to us, and we then do the work of trying to adapt ourselves to those tenets or beliefs or precepts or rules, etc. And no harm, no foul. What gets lost often, though, is doing the hard and ongoing work of saying what's true for me. And what happens mm-hmm. if what's true for me is not in alignment with what I've been told and taught? Now what? This is a new series of questions, a new window that we open that can be really scary and threatening for a lot of people. And we shut it faster than we opened it because it's a can- it feels like a can of worms or it feels like Eve eating the apple or it feels like Pandora's box. It just feels like it's going to get really bad really fast if we start asking these hard questions. And yet, from my perspective, it is the stuff of life. It is the most important work we'll ever do. Yeah, and before we began our conversation this morning, I read Genesis one and two again just to have a, a fresh it fresh in my mind, <laughs> and I was looking at it at all sorts of all sorts of different angles. I mean, I, I I can't even probably say on this podcast all the different angles I was looking at it, but there it, it's it's not like the story has. I mean, the stories are there. Um, because there's symbols, symbols in them. There's something for us to discern about ourselves. There's something us, 
uh, about, I think it's kind of like Jungian psychology, this aspect of ourselves and stories. There's an Adam in us and an Eve in us and a God in us and a serpent in us, or, you know, it's, it's like, we're mm-hmm. all, we're all those characters. Um, and, and that's why they've been told for thousands and thousands of years. There's so much meaning in the story. And as you say, we're there to find the meaning for ourselves. I did watch your TED talk and it was very excellent. Oh, <laughs> and thank you. let's talk about, yeah, let's talk about Eve. Um, I, I, I have a particular love for the story of Genesis and, in, in so many for so many different reasons, but let's talk about Eve and what what you see and how we can look at a more empowering Eve. And well, I'll just let you. I'll just turn it over to you. <laughs> yeah. Again, this story would be even longer than me telling my story because I have I so know. much to say about <laughs> Eve. Um, yeah. I think that one of the you predom- managed to do it a TED talk for fifteen minutes. <laughs> I did. I did. I think I got it in there like at eleven and a half. So that was pretty good. Yeah. Um, yeah. The I think one of the reasons that I have landed so predominantly on the story of Eve is because it's one that everybody knows no matter what. Mm-hmm. You did not have to grow up in the church to know, the, if you live in the Western world particularly, to know the story of Eve. And you don't just know the story of Eve. You, you know the takeaways that have come from the story of Eve, which are that you women can't be trusted to make decisions for themselves. You should not listen to your own wisdom. You should follow the rules. When you don't do that, when you follow your desire, when you reach for what it is that you want, when you trust yourself, then all hell breaks loose and you are separated from God and everything goes to hell in a handbasket. Like it's all downhill from there. Once you make a decision on your own behalf. Now that sounds super dramatic, but in truth, that is exactly what we've taken from that story. And, you know, this is what I talk about in the TED Talk, but when we follow the trajectory of history in terms of how hugely significant that story was in shaping early thinkers, philosophers, understandings of gender and marriage and well, gender predominantly women and men, but also relationship with God and sin and the fall and all this stuff. It didn't live in a, initially those stories didn't live exclusively in a religious context. This was philosophical thought that influenced our politics and our social structures. Our whole world, in my opinion, is built in large part on how that story was told. So if you think about scripture as like a house of cards or a big long row of dominoes, if I pull the first one or a tip, I tap the first Mm -hmm. domino, all the rest of them start to fall, which when I very first sort of stumbled across this, that felt incredibly daunting. And then later I'm like, yay, let's tip them all over. That sounds awesome. Let's just. (laughs) <laughs> you know, tip, like, destroy the house of cards and let's build this thing back up again. So I look at the story of Eve and I ask myself, what of this story is what I've been told? And what of this story is the story? Understanding that the story has been told for hundreds and thousands of years and interpreted and rewritten and, you know, there's no original text. There's no like, 
we'll never know why this story was originally made up in the first place and created on behalf of the Israelite people. Like, we'll never know. So I, I guess I feel like, well, I don't guess, I do. Given that throughout time, people have subjectively made decisions about what that story means, then I get to do the same thing. I can mm, make decisions subjectively mm-hmm. about what this decision means. Now, I'm not mm-hmm. doing this irresponsibly. Like, I've grown up in this tradition. I've gotten a master's degree in this. Like, I'm not just making stuff up. Like, I, I it's grounded in some sense of academia and thought and discernment and all those kinds of things. All that said, when I look at that story, what I see rather than the shame, the sin, the fall, all those kinds of things, is a woman who listened to her own wisdom and actually trusted it, actually went against the grain, so to speak. Uh, And many could argue, did she ever hear the command or only Adam? Like there's so much you could argue about the text itself. I'm not really interested in arguing it as much as I am being curious about it. But it's a woman who chose to trust her own wisdom and her own intuition and to follow her desire and take what she wanted. And when we think about that and then we say, well, look what happened when she did. Well, when I look at what happened when she did, what I see is that outside of Eden, the interaction and intimacy with the divine went up exponentially. It didn't decrease. It increased. In fact, there's no actual mention in Genesis 1 to 3 of God in in any like physical form. We hear that God walked in the garden at the pool of the day, but we don't have any text that tells us that Adam and Eve saw God, only that God walked. Well, what happens? Genesis 4 forward. God shows up, shows up, shows up, shows up, speaks, 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 protects guides, shepherds, leads, and if we follow the theology through, sends God's very self. Like, everything changed outside of Eden in terms of our relationship with the divine. So one could say, thank you, Eve. One could say, look at what women intuitively know and understand. Look at what women have the capacity to bring to the fore when they're trusted. That, if we had believed that hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, we would be in a radically different world today. And I guess at the end of the day, the way I look at it is that's one woman's story that has, the way it's been told, has dramatically changed the world that we live in. So retelling it might actually be able to do the same. Maybe if we retold it, we could change it again. Yeah. All for good. Okay. Very interesting. So you're 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 relooking at the story. Doesn't you don't even see a fall. Like there's not even a fall. It's more like a door that, w- that they walk through. Yeah. And the fall, of course, is theology that was applied thousands of years later. Like that wasn't mm-hmm. inherent in the telling of the story in the beginning. I mean, you can look up that when did, you know, theological thought around the fall, even the concept, those words 
don't show up in scripture right. anywhere. Like that right. was something no, that not, was applied, right? So they're not no, there. I think I, I think it. it's a I, yeah. I, I think it. I think people probably go to that because it's like, oh my gosh, now you've got to work, and now you're going to have child, you know. Bear pain and childbirth and things like that. They're like, okay, this mm-hmm. is the, people then go to the judgment. This is worse than that. <laughs> yes. But I guess even that I look at, and I think this is one of the reasons why I love these stories in scripture when we can look at them through this lens. And if I just take Eve's, I think I would so much rather be connected to the story of people who struggle like me, who understand pain in childbirth, who understand toil and suffering, who understand futility, who understand um, ache and heartache and loss. And she loses a son shortly after. Like, uh, that I can relate to that. And I can relate to a divine entity who shows up for those people. My life is not Eden. None of us live in that world. And so, sure, I can think about heaven in the future, but that doesn't help me right now. I can think about the kingdom of heaven on earth, like that whole body of theology. What does it mean to invite Eden or invite God's will and presence into the present day? Okay, but I have, I, I'm a realist. Like, yes, I'm all for that. That sounds awesome in a world that's broken and hurting and suffering from a pandemic and separated and divisive and argumentative and messy. Well, that's a story that I can relate to, which is the story that Adam and Eve and Abraham and Sarah and everybody through that whole text show us is the mess of it all and a God that's with us in that as opposed to the perfect thing that somehow Eve screwed up for us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I think there's so many ways, so many places to go in this conversation. I do want to share with you my thoughts on, on that story because to me, it wasn't, it wasn't any, it was never anything that, you know, Eve did wrong. <laughs> she, mm-hmm. It was to, to me, to me, their movement their movement from Eden to the world we live in now was not connected to, quote, disobedience or to Eve, uh, what's the word, um, being enticed or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Her seduction, to, yeah, to her transgression. Seduction, yeah, yeah the seduction, yeah. Mm-hmm. To me, I've always looked at the story as what happened was neither of them were willing to be honest and authentic in their response to God when he's like, hey, what happened? Mm. Neither of them said, you know what? I just wanted to eat the apple. Me too. What happened? What I what mm. I see happening is Eve going, the serpent made me do it. And, and Adam going, she made me do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so what was going on in their, in their psyches was uh, projection and blame of others versus just being accountable. Like, we just did what we did. And I feel like if Mm -hmm. they just said, we just did what we did, you know, the story would also be very different. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of it, it, even in that telling, Carol, is that still the divine stays present, doesn't punish or, right? And I think that's the piece that we miss. Oh, yes, yes. Right? 
Um, so yeah. I just think not a punishment. Yeah, we, we, no, no, not a punishment. In fact, when I was in seminary, um, I was talking to one of the professors one day and he was looking at Genesis two, I think it is not Genesis one. And in Genesis two, there's this whole description of the rivers the Tigris yes. and the Euphrates the four, that flow yeah. out from Eden. Yes, the four rivers that converge. And so he said to me one day, because I was wrestling with all of this, and he said, what do people do with rivers, Rana? When people stumble across a stream in the mountains or they come across a river, what do they do? And I said, I, I don't I don't know what you mean. I'm not like an outdoor person. <laughs> I, don't, I don't hike. <laughs> I, don't, I don't do these things. I don't know what you mean. And he said, they follow them. All through humanity, if you watch the migration of peoples, it's always they follow the water. And he said, so one could say, if you want to look at the story this way, that even in the divine plan, they were always meant to leave. Yes. They were always meant to go out. And the river yes. would have taken them that way if something else hadn't already. Eve just happened to be an accelerated student. And moved them yes. forward even faster. <laughs> yes, in your TED talk, when you said something like you asked people like what what uh, what what did the descriptors that come to mind with Eve and you know we have this temptress and all these negative mm -hmm. words and and I'm like pioneer. <laughs> I think she's a pioneer. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, really bold, and you know, it's it's pretty it's pretty obvious. It, you know, you're, you're, you're a parent, right? Are you a parent? Yes. Yeah. You I have two grown daughters. Yeah. 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 So, you know, you know, when you tell your child this one thing, I don't want you to touch. <laughs> I mean, how much, how much do we accomplish with that? You, we know yeah. that we're saying, touch this, touch this. <laughs> yes. Right. Exactly. I mean, so God's like, don't touch this. Don't touch this. Yeah. What what do you think was really? I mean, what was really go really going on now? Absolutely knowing that that's what they're going to touch next. <laughs> yes, and so I think there's something so lovely, even as you're retelling that, like what it mean, what does it mean for us to allow these stories to be told with a sense of humor? Can we allow that God is the parent that knows full well what's going to go down right here, instead of it being this God versus us? or God, you know, like we've just created these binaries and these structures that are so restrictive. And it's no wonder why people walk away from this kind of doctrine and theology over time, because it doesn't, it doesn't work for us in the complexity of our lives. So I love being able to laugh about it and wonder about it in much lighter and looser ways. Uh, I think it's so much more redemptive. Yeah, I do too. Another way I look, I have taught, uh, I was taught to look at Bible stories was to um, place yourself into the psyche, the mind, and the heart of the character. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if we're looking at Adam or Eve, or if we're looking at uh, Abraham and Isaac or something, that, you know, place yourself in Isaac. And what was he thinking and feeling as these things were happening, as and his mm -hmm. dad started doing this? And 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 to really experience the the feeling of the character and and it, 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 I'm only saying this because the characters come alive in a different way too, and something yeah. happens within you where it's like oh I can see how I am this character I can see mm -hmm. how I I 
in the same setting, I might do this or I might do that, but I can feel the character and they really come alive. And that's why I think yeah. stories that have been told over and over and over again have some real power in them. Mm-hmm. But if they're told with that rigidity, like you're talking about, you know, where we learn in Sunday school, this is it. <laughs> and mm-hmm. here's the interpretation. You know, you know, how many people want to go to class and hear, here's the story and here's the interpretation. Yeah. I mean, the critical yeah. thinking happens in the, here's the story. What do you, mm-hmm. what do you get from this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think another, I mean, one of the things you were saying was this idea of putting yourself in the position of, or imagining yourself in the story. And if we think about the history of Christianity, or we think about even the, the biblical text, the stories in which that interpretation has been done have been predominantly of men. Yes. And even when they've been of women, it's been through the perspective or interpretation of men. Yes. And so this is a whole like 50% of the world's perspective has not been given to this text, has not been considered as we've built religions and churches and theologies and written tomes and tomes and tomes of books that that's not been imagined. And that part breaks my heart. Uh, that's where I think, okay, enough's enough. Like they've been, and I don't mean this in a, but in a gendered, like I'm mad at men. I don't, it's just the reality of history, but I sit in this point at this point in time. And I think enough of that, like I want and need to hear these stories told, even men's stories told through the lens of a woman, because it's going to change the outcome. It, and right. not, not, not good or bad. It just gives us more to consider. And it helps us understand each other so much better when everything isn't uniquely or strictly through a male and patriarchal lens. Uh, And so we have to mess with the system and we have to be disruptive in order to kind of push that other lens through. Uh, But it's so important, so important and so healing for men and women both. Yeah, I agree. That's why I said that in the beginning. This is so important for men. Mm-hmm. So uh, are you rewriting the Bible? <laughs> you should. <laughs> uh, is that how I would say it? Well, I am I'm, I'm working on a book. It'll be out in mm-hmm. 2023. And right. um, so what I'm doing is I, I'm working with in this book, I'll just use 13 of the stories, but 52 are the ones that I've been working with up to this point in time over the last 20 years or something. But um I take the story similar to what you just heard me do with Eve. I want to basically tell it as we've told it, not as it's written necessarily, but as we've right. told it. Right. And right. then I want to be able to deconstruct, uh, like, here's here's what this has led to. Here are the inherent beliefs that you hold within, particularly women, when you believe that you're not enough, when you believe that you're too much, when you believe that you can't trust yourself, like, These are the stories that taught you that. Now, what if we were to reimagine this story? What if we were to retell it? What if we were to redeem the story of Hagar or the story of Eve or the story of the woman at the well or the story of the woman caught in adultery? Like, I don't care. We can take any of them. Right. If we read, (laughs) if we tell them again through a much different lens, how does that begin to heal how we understand ourselves, how we interact with the divine. I mean, I think I say a bit of this in my TED talk, but you know, when I think of my own understanding, what I learned about God growing up and what is buried deep within me in terms of what I understand about God, which 
I might intellectually disagree with, but still within me, like I can, I, you know, I have to mind my P's and Q's or else kind of, and I don't really believe that, but it's within me. Mm-hmm. It's I think what would it, it is, what would it have been like if generations of humans had grown up knowing of a divine, of a God that is generous and kind and compassionate and funny and all of, I mean, we would be in a different world today. Right. And we're not in that world. So that's the one that I am wanting to rewrite it theoretically, conceptually. Because I think what happens is people end up going, okay, first of all, people, even if they're atheists, they have they have no idea that they're still living the story. <laughs> you, exactly. They're still living the story. I mean, our, our culture, yep. everything is yep. is built yep. on these fundamental mm-hmm. you know, beliefs. Uh, so, and and then they look at the stories and they go, "Oh, that's so ridiculous!" And they throw the story out. And it's like, don't throw the story out. <laughs> there's that's, there's still real power in the story. But mm-hmm. I think that's that's a, a reaction people have. Oh, the Bible's so dumb. You know, throw it out. It anyone who believes the Bible is wrong and, and they're not thinking there's that faction of, of, of our culture. And yet the stories are so rich and what you're doing with this new book, which I know will be a bestseller right away. It just, it's just something that's not been done and needs to be done. And you're the perfect person for it. Um, what you'd be doing is, is keeping the stories intact, but allowing people to open their minds to see what else, the richness that's in it from another, mm-hmm. another perspective. Yeah. That's so important. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm really, what I'm really trying to do is to be able to tell the story without the doctrine and dogma attached. Right. Can we right. look at the woman in her time with what she suffered through or struggled or experienced just like we would a, an historical figure or like we would a mythic story? Isis mm-hmm. or Hestia or, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know, like we look at those stories and we don't shudder <laughs> and say, I'm not looking at that story. We think what an interesting story that has somehow shaped the Greek and Roman minds that then led to the way that we interpreted scripture, which then led, right? It just is part of the litany of where we come from, but something like pushes us to a, we come to some screeching halt when it comes to scripture. And I just think that I don't want, I think I don't want them lost because of the contempt around the text or the rigidity around the text. Mm -hmm. I think the stories and the women, particularly, that's my focus, uh, deserve to be known in a way that is relevant and empowering. So um, do you want to talk about Hagar? Sure. Sure. Okay. Let's talk about Hagar. What do you want to say about her? Yeah. She's She's my favorite. A misunderstood woman. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, she's my favorite. Uh, people ask me that all the time, and you know, sort of like choosing your favorite child. But um, yeah, she's <laughs> definitely she's definitely my favorite, uh, probably because she's the first story that um, uh, I was in spiritual direction. My marriage was really, really hard, and I remember my spiritual director saying to me, "What are this?" And I said, "I just feel like I'm wandering around in the desert. Like I just cannot find my way to the other side. I'll never get there. Like it's hot. It's awful. It's." I, I can't see the end from the beginning. Like I, I, I don't, I don't even know what to do. 
And she said to me, what are the stories of the desert that you know, Rana, of women in the desert? Oh, oh wow. And I said, That's powerful. And I said, Hagar, woman at the well. And then there's a third story that I work with in the desert that's the story of a woman in Revelation 12. And she goes, well, let's just go with the first one, shall we? So I went with Hagar and she said, and she just said, I want you to go home and I want you to start writing. Like, what do you think Hagar would say to you in the desert? She knows an awful lot about it, doesn't she? And this is really what started all of this for me. Like, I just started writing what I thought Hagar would say to me. And I sat at my computer, little girls, you know, taking naps or not taking naps and, you know, everything that was going on at that time. And I just wept and wept and wept. Uh, because I just, I felt so seen and heard mm. by her because who else is going to understand better than a person who has already lived through hell once mm -hmm. and then a second time. <laughs> and so when I look at her story and the fact that she is marginalized and displaced and has no voice and has no power and still is harmed. Uh, when I look at the fact that she ran away, given the fact that she had no power, no resourcing, how bad must it have been for her to choose to run away as a slave instead of stay where she knew she had shelter and food? That's how bad the abuse from Sarah had to have been for her to choose to leave. Then I get further in her story and I see her fear and her, you know, crying out for help. And what happens? The divine shows up for her. Right. Now, when you look at this story and I, I, I oh my gosh, I could just go on a rant here, Carol. So you have to stop me. But <laughs> Hagar is the very first person in all of scripture to whom a theophany occurs where God shows up in visible form. Why did no one tell us this? Why yeah. has no one been talking about the fact that it's a woman who is marginalized, a slave without power? All of the things that we hear through the prophets and then in the New Testament is who God shows up for first. We never talk about that. We talk about the burning bush. We talk about Abraham hearing that he should leave everything. But the first time is Hagar. And I just took so much comfort in that. She introduced me to an experience of the divine that nobody had told me about before. And then as I walked through my own desert, like I, and I still feel this way today, I just like literally felt like she was like shoulder to shoulder. Like you've got, like, I get it. It's hard. It's hot. It's awful. You're not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone. And then I could look further in her story and I could see what happened in terms of her becoming pregnant and then the rivalry between Sarah and, you know, how she feels about what's going to happen to Isaac if Ishmael is still around. And, you know, the story just goes on and on. It just never really gets much better until we, see, but she's recognized a second time. Her son is saved a second, she's saved a second time. And then he becomes the leader of the entire like nation of Islam, which again, we don't talk about except in a divisive way. And I think this is the woman who survived this, who brought this into being, who birthed this life 
and who was cared for and seen so profoundly by the divine. We should be talking about her. Yeah. We should yeah. know who she is. It's so inspiring and so comforting and so consoling to know that we're not alone in those spaces and that we're seen and heard and blessed and honored. Yeah. And for people who are listening who may not know the story, like you said, everybody pretty much knows Adam and Eve. Do you want to tell a really quick retelling of the sure. Hagar and Abraham and Sarah? Yeah. So Abraham and Sarah are traveling through the desert because God has promised that Abraham will be the father of nations. And so they're just meandering around trying to figure out what that means. They're in their 90s. Uh, they need children. <laughs> in order to be the father of nations, and they still don't have any. And so Sarah is irritated with this whole plan. And so she sends Hagar, who's a slave of hers, in to sleep with Abraham to get pregnant, because the tradition at the time would be that the slave could give birth to the child and it would become the owner's yeah, yeah, child. Yeah, it's the original Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so then when Hagar does get pregnant, Sarah gets a little bit ticked off about this and she ends up, Hagar runs away and uh, an angel meets her in the desert and gives her water, sends her back. Then it gets worse after the baby is born. She runs away a second time uh, and is met yet again in the desert. And Sarah eventually has a child, obviously they're in the middle at age 92 or some crazy thing. Um, it's a crazy story. It's a, it is it's a, crazy a crazy story, story. and it gets crazier. <laughs> <laughs> it, does. it does. But I think to go back even to what we were talking about with Adam and Eve, I mean, we know the story of Abraham and Sarah. Mm -hmm. Hagar is kind of a footnote. Right. We barely right. talk about her. Uh, if you grew up in the Islamic tradition, you knew a lot about Hagar and you knew right. about Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael, etc. But in, in the Western Judeo-Christian tradition, we've not honored her story. We've seen her as a like a fly in the ointment. Like she shouldn't have been talking to Sarah that way. There's nothing in the text that tells us that she was doing anything. Sarah's irritated with her. Sarah sends her mm -hmm. away. But we don't talk Sarah about that. Sarah had some major issues. <laughs> Sarah had a lot of issues. Understandably, given that Abraham was sex trafficking her. So... There's so many problems in this text that we don't actually look at very closely that I think deserve a few more looks. A few more looks <laughs> from another perspective. Yes. <laughs> wow. And, well, I, anyway. I love the way you, you talk about how you got really close or Hagar got really close to you, like when you were doing your, your work, you know, that mm -hmm. like, you know, you, I, first of all, I love how you told your was it your therapist that you're in, you feel like you're in the desert and she's, and then guided you towards who else is in the desert. And mm -hmm. I think that's something that we can do a, a lot. So then Hagar kind of shows up for you in your psyche, or I don't know, she shows up like an angel, however it shows up for you. And, and she's close to you, right? I mean, like mm -hmm. she came close to you and you walk mm -hmm. with her. And th mm -hmm. that's where the richness of the story is. All these stories are, is these characters can, can walk with us. And mm -hmm. they've, they've, they've blazed the trail before us. And here we are in our lives having our own kind of suffering. You know, who else has suffered like this and who else can, can guide me on my path? And, Absolutely. and, um, I spoke with somebody a few weeks ago who, um, who has a connection with angels. And I even asked her, is like, why well, talk to the angels, but you could talk to God. And she said, well, you know, you, you, first of all, that you can talk to God, <laughs> 
but <laughs> you can also talk to the angels <laughs> and like, you can also talk to these characters. You can, you know, you can also connect in so many different ways with the divine who's going to show up for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's another great story you love? Mm. Gosh, do you want me to draw a card for you from my deck and we'll just see who shows up? Yes. Wonderful. You have a deck of cards? Of the yeah, 52? I have a deck of cards. Yeah. Okay. So we'll just, oh, we'll just love see. That. Yeah, we'll just see who shows up for us. Do you sell those? Uh-huh. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. And they have like a something. Okay, great. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. Okay. So here's the card I drew for us today. So uh, this is the story of Miriam, Moses' sister. All right. And on each of the cards, then I have three pieces of wisdom that I think are inherent in that woman's story. So here are the three things. So her story, Miriam is the one who uh, Moses is uh, all the baby boys are supposed to be killed in Egypt because the Pharaoh is irritated that the Hebrews are multiplying too fast. And so he tells the midwives that they need to kill all the baby boys. Moses is born. His mother doesn't want him to die. So she puts him in a basket, sends him down the river. Miriam, his sister, is sent to watch from afar to make sure that the baby's okay. She sees the Pharaoh's daughter fish Moses out of the river. And then she bravely goes to the Pharaoh's daughter and says, hey, I happen to know somebody who could nurse him. Would you like that? And the Pharaoh's daughter says, yeah, that'd be great. Just bring him back to me when he's weaned. So she takes Moses back to her mother, who's now, he's now safe because he actually belongs to the Pharaoh's daughter. Moses ends up growing up in the Pharaoh's house. And then eventually he realizes that his his own people are being massively oppressed. He's the one, let my people go. He's the one who takes the he, you know, the blood over the door and the, all the plagues of the frogs and the, all the stuff, that lo- the locusts, all the things that happen in the story of Moses that, yeah. you know, we've seen with Charlton Heston or the pick the Disney version or the Pixar version or whatever it is of right. Moses. Uh, anyhow, uh, they escape and they go through the Red Sea. And the, the text tells us that on the other side of the Red Sea, Miriam and all the women gathered and danced which is the very first mention we have in scripture of dancing of any kind. And it's Miriam. Okay. And wow, then there's okay. a later reference to her story as well, in terms of offering guidance and support to Moses. Uh, so she served as an advisor to him further on as they continued to wander through the desert for 40 years. Anyway, the three pieces of wisdom that I hear from her is number one, trust other women and let them trust you. So she trusts the Pharaoh's daughter and the Pharaoh's daughter trusts her, which I think is, is very countercultural for women often to trust and to be trusted. So I think Miriam speaks volumes to us about that. Number Mm -hmm. two, your courage will sustain you Mm. massive amounts of courage that she had to demonstrate, certainly in the watching of her brother float down the river going to speak to the Pharaoh's daughter in the first place. She has the courage to speak back to Moses later on in his life. Um, she just, she just demonstrates courage, 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 courage for us in multiple ways. And then the third statement that I have from her is dangerous waters will not drown. So again, think about this, right? Like we find ourselves in places like, let's even just think about COVID. 
where we don't know what the outcome's going to be, especially, you know, back a couple of years where we constantly were afraid. And maybe we are again now with new strains, all the, depending on where you sit on the spectrum. But when we find ourselves in those kinds of places, we are afraid of what the outcome will be. Will I make it through? What will happen to my children? What's happening to the earth? What will happen with the next political election? Like we are fearful that we won't make it through. And Miriam says, dangerous waters will not drown. You'll make it through. Now, for me, I don't need this as a promise. Miriam said, so that's what it's going to be. For me, it's the reminder in the storm, in the worst of it, desert with Hagar. I need to be reminded by these women who are part of my matrilineal line. I see you, Rana. I get what's going on right now. I promise you're not going to drown. It's going to be okay. And when I believe that, I behave differently. I trust more. I risk more. I'm willing to step, take another step, even though the chariots are barreling down from the other side. Um, I'm gonna, it's going to be okay. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. That's great. I love those cards. So it's kind of like a daily devotional or something you can It can be. Yeah, I and, use them every day for journaling. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I think in that story, gosh, I think a lot about Moses' mom <laughs> mm-hmm. and letting that baby. I'm 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 like hoping that those that was a nice little calm river. I don't know anything about that river where she lets her baby go down. I know. Can river, you even but, imagine? Ah, you know, I've always looked at as as that gesture as a symbol of 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 giving life, like like really having that power of release and letting go. And um, ultimately, I mean, the ultimate letting go is letting go of your child and trusting and having faith mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. not being afraid that the river is gonna, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> knock him out of his little basket. Yeah. Um, you know, we have contemporary examples of this with motherhood, right? If you think about um, slavery in our country, where mothers would sacrifice themselves on behalf of their children, or we think about the refugee crisis, where parents are choosing to forego their own safety on behalf of the life that they hope to give to their children. I mean, we just, it, this, is, this is what we see in this unique story in this particular text, but it is replicated again and again and again, where there is this selfless uh, sacrifice on behalf of the life that we honor more than our own. Yeah. And, and those are so, um, so inspiring because, you know, unfortunately there are so many people also in this world who do sacrifice their children and they yes, do give them up. Of course. It's so horribly sad. Yeah. And, um, you know, there must be some horrible desperation in that. I, it's something that's so unfathomable to me in my world, but, but we know that's happening to children of as course. they get into trafficking and all of that. Mm-hmm. And, of course. Uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Rana, where else do you want to go with this conversation? We've got, I don't know, 10 minutes or so. Do you want to talk about another story? Do you want to talk about the meaning this has for people? Do you want to talk about your book? Gosh, I could go any direction. <laughs> um, you know your audience best, Carol. What do you think would be most helpful for them? Well, I think we should take another story. Take another card. Yep. Fine to do that. 
Let's see. Oh my gosh. Okay, this one's awesome. Ready? Yeah. All right. Uh, in Genesis 6, I think it is, there's basically like two sentences. It's super obscure. There's a story that says, uh, then one day the angels in heaven noticed the women and came down and mated with them. And the women gave birth to the Nephilim, who were like giants in the land. Oh, the giants. Yeah. Uh, and that's really the end of the story. That's really all we've got. Okay. There's a tiny bit more that follows after that, but nothing more about the women. So I call these the women angels loved. And I have pages and pages that I've written on this. Um, because, again, these are these little things that we miss when right. we aren't looking at the text through a particular lens. And I think there are questions to ask about this. Like, wow, normal women just going about their day-to-day -day lives are so enticing. <laughs> of course they are. That's how awesome we are. Right. That's who we are. We bring heaven to earth just by being ourselves. And what do we then do once we have like mated with the divine? Well, we give birth to things that are even bigger and more fantastic and never to be seen again. All right. So that's the whole story. There's really nothing more to it. But the pieces of wisdom that I have here that I think are just so important for women to understand about themselves as counter messaging to what the culture constantly tells us. Number one, you are irresistible. Uh, if we believed that about ourselves, oh gosh, yeah. There's so much we would not waste our time with ever again. There's so much courage we would feel to step into conversations, relationships, places, jobs, whatever because we're not worried about how we're going to be perceived. We just understand ourselves to be irresistible. Number two, just be you. It stops heaven in its tracks. <laughs> Again, not the predominant messaging that we have received as women. And I think it makes all the difference. I don't have to look a certain way, act a certain way, believe the right things. I get to just be me. And I, this is what I summon. This is the power I hold just by being who I am. That's important for us to understand as women. And number three, what you bring forth is larger than life. Oh, I love that. Which is so I... important for us to hold as women, to believe that we're bringing forth. It doesn't have to be, you know, I mean, I struggled with infertility for five years and I have such a place in my heart for women who deeply long to get be mothers and cannot. And I think when we use this language around birthing, or bringing forth or nurturing, if you're not, it, it's in our culture, it's very difficult for women who've not actually experienced childbirth, whether by choice or because they want to and can't. And what I always want to remember and hold and honor is that I just think women at their truest 
when they have the freedom and permission and belief to be who they are, we naturally bring forth life into the world. It can be what you write. It can be the way that you cook dinner. It can be, it can be anything. It just is your nature to bring forth life in every form. And so this story says what you bring forth is larger than life. It's going to be big. It is. And that's a beautiful thing to trust and believe in on your own behalf. Well, the way women are in the world and the way young girls think about themselves, it's very inverted. And I, I always try to guide young women to like model the bird of paradise where the, the female bird is sitting there and watching all of the male birds dance and do their thing before they kind of pick one. But we're just so the opposite. We see young girls in college that just kind of are, are looking for how, how can I be attractive and all of that? And, and how can I play into men? And, and how can I f find a mate? And what do I need to do to myself? And it's so inverted because I do believe we hold the power. Do you think that this inversion is all um, based on, on Eve and, uh, and the, and yeah, the, it's, it's that original story. That original story has set us on the trajectory. Absolutely. Which is why it has to be retold. It has and to be new retold. ones have to be offered because I just think it's a lie from the pit of hell that has caused a world of problems that we would not have had we had the foresight to tell the story differently. And I'm right. not going to spend much of my time. I do a little bit, but not much. I don't want to argue the history. I don't want to argue the theology. Right. I don't want to argue these things because I understand how we got to where we are. Like I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I understand why we are where we are, but we don't have to stay here. We do right. have the capacity to look back with some wisdom and perspective and say, these things were okay. These things totally missed the boat. Let's see what we can do to move forward in a way that is more expansive and more holistic and more generous and actually allows for the perspective and wisdom and humanity of what women have not been able to bring to the fore and honor all of them as well as what is still to come. So, you know, uh, there's a lot of people who think that we're in kind of a societal deconstruction right now. I mean, some people think we're going to go back to normal eventual and others think, you know, it's, it's all kind of coming down, in which case, rather than be in fear about that, we can look at what can we create? <laughs> what can we build? What stories, what new stories can we tell? Yeah, there's such an opportunity. Yeah, I think we've been, especially within the religious world, we've been taught to fear deconstruction. But in truth, it is the very thing that brings forth new life. It is, right. it's the breaking of, or the, of the old that allows for the new. Uh, and so sure, there are lots of unknowns in our world today and lots of things that appear to be getting worse instead of getting better. And if I were to take a very simplistic perspective, I would say, well, then we got nothing to lose. Right. <laughs> you may as well go for it. You may as well be irresistible. You may as well, you know, be the, the, what did you call her? The bird of paradise. Uh, yeah. cause 
you got nothing to lose. Like try right. the opposite right. of everything you've been told because all this is not working and appears to be declining even faster. Right. <laughs> and I think the other message though is also like the Hagar message. If we end up going through this deconstruction and if it's scary, <laughs> if we feel alone, that, you know, God is there, that, that we are not alone, that we will, we will walk through the desert together and create something beautiful. Same thing with uh, the stories of the Israelites in, uh, in the wilderness, you know, getting to the promised land. It, it took a while, but that they had to really shift their consciousness in order to, to be able to get there. You know, one of the things that I often think about in terms of the practical, the practical way of understanding these old stories, these women as currently present, if you think about like a grandmother that you loved who passed away five years ago, 50 years ago, whenever it was. Most of us who've had those kinds of relationships with significant people in our lives can, I don't even mean this in like a metaphysical way, but we, we believe that they remain present on our behalf. Oh, yes. They, and sometimes we even sense their presence. We hear their voice, a butterfly goes past, something happens where, you know, when we've experienced profound loss where we, we still believe that that person remains on our behalf. Even the scriptural idea in Galatians is at the great cloud of witnesses. We, we have this concept of being surrounded and supported by those who have gone before. And that's exactly how I think about these women. They are in our ancestral line. We've descended from them. And there's nothing that would prevent me from seeing them as my matrilineage. These are the women from whom I descend. I just didn't get to hear their stories. But they've been that present, that close, that intimate, that desirous of my best all along. So what if I just invite them in? What if I just understand them that way? And then of course I'm not alone. I'm standing on the shoulders of generations of women who are doing nothing but trying to lift me up and offer me every bit of wisdom that they've gleaned through the centuries, which just makes things better for me and gives me more to offer to others. It's very empowering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think Rhonda, I would love to have you back on when you, when your book is ready to publish. Oh, thank you. I think it would be that. really wonderful. I, I look forward to reading it and I think that we can go further in and deeper in the conversation with that. So you think it's going to be next year? Yeah, it's under contract. So right now it's scheduled for fall of 23. So and you have a title? Yeah. Uh, I'm still uh, I'm still on the fence, so I'll okay. you'll you'll see it when I decide for okay. sure. Yeah. Okay, great. Um all right, before I close, is there any any last words you want to say? Well, gosh, I would I'm just I'm so grateful, Carol. Like I love these conversations and I appreciate the lens and perspective that you bring, which is very distinct and uh and grateful that people are listening and am always open for more conversations. So people can certainly hit me up and I'm happy to talk. Great. And we'll have all your contact information on the on the website, the page for this podcast. Um, and I just love stories. So thank you so much for sharing your story and the wonderful richness of these Bible stories and the lives of these women. 
uh, that we stand on. And I look forward to talking again. Beautiful. So thank you so much for sharing your your generous spirit. Absolutely. My privilege. Thank you. You're welcome. And I now close the spiritual forum. Thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about us, check out thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. We're a nonprofit corporation and depend solely on donations from people like you. If you find that you're benefiting from your listening, we encourage you to donate on our website, thespiritualforum.org. Our music is by Matt Nelson. Sound engineering is by Mark Jaschelski.